on Twitter. I am David Mack. He is Saeed Jones. I'm not used to reading this part of the show. It's Tuesday. You're watching AM to DM. Okay, so you know I live to drag David, but this morning I have nothing but praise because David wasn't even scheduled to be co-hosting with me today. Uh, I was riding the train mm -hmm. uh, this morning, mm -hmm. uh, and I got an urgent bat signal in the sky, which is what they do when they need me. You can see that from your subway. I line? can, yeah, I can. All and right. uh, poor Steph woke up ill this morning, yeah. so uh, we're 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 all all systems go, and we're mobilizing yeah. to come and, you know. But this means you have to be nice to me today. And we'll see how long I can stick to it. I do say, really, stuff feel better. Feel better. Shout out to you, friend. And shout out to uh, our sound guy, Dan, who lent me his shirt today. Aren't I living for the shirt? Doesn't yeah. it look, thank you, doesn't it look nice? I'm stealing really like this it. shirt. It's because, very pretty. Uh, I was not wearing a TV appropriate shirt this morning. Not that it has oh, swear words right. on it, it just like. There is a reason we tend to wear bold patterns, and it's yes. because anything that's like too small gets like weirdly. It looks bad. So lucky Dan and I are the same size. So we decided to soothe your eyes with a much calmer visual power. It looks like, as our. our uh, camera guys were here saying before, it looks like we're in Miami Vice this morning, so... <laughs> Ace Ventura, gay, gay, <laughs> the reboot. Anyway, let's get to the timeline. Uh, a lot of people are tweeting about Louis C.K. this morning, and I just checked, and he is trending. Here's why. Overnight, the New York Times reported that comedian uh, Louis C.K. made an unannounced appearance at a New York City comedy club, performing there for the first time since he admitted to sexual misconduct. That was Sunday night. To which Chandler Dean replied, I can't believe Louis C.K. of all people subjected an unsuspecting crowd to several minutes of self-indulgent behavior without their consent. Okay, and uh, many, many people have made that same subsequent joke since. Um, but here's the thing, yeah, so it was Sunday night at the Comedy Cellar, pretty well-known, I think, uh, comedy venue, in front of a crowd of 115 people. Louis C.K. got at a, a standing ovation just walking out on stage, mm. which... Uh, I've been thinking a lot this morning about our uh, reporter, Katie Baker. She wrote yeah. a piece for the New York Times yeah. about what do we do with all these bad men uh, as a society, you know, the ones who need to go to jail should go to jail, but the ones who need to rehabilitate themselves, we should try to rehabilitate. Mm -hmm. But you also made another point this morning, which is that it's only been less than it's a year. It's been less than a year. It's been less than a, a year. And I was thinking, I... I am not one of the five women who came forward uh, very bravely and shared their experiences of being, you know, uh, harassed and, and assaulted by Louis C.K.'s behavior. So I can't define what justice looks like for them, what rede redemption looks like for them. But I'm like, maybe, maybe his first, you know, kind of public yeah. appearance should have been them, him giving those five women a spotlight to yeah. have a show or something yeah. together, and him, you know, taking a back seat. In any case. This is an important conversation. Matt Lauer also is out here talking about, you know, joining TV. So I think this is the next aspect of Me Too, for better or worse, way too soon maybe, yeah. uh, but figuring out what the pathway forward looks like. Because, yeah. surprise, straight white men are pretty resilient. <laughs> Pretty resilient. Well, anyway, a lot going on here. You can check out Michael, Michael Ian Black's timeline if you really want to go on a ride. No. Uh, but for now, let's take it to our timeline. What are your thoughts on Louis C.K.'s surprise performance, redemption, return? Yeah. Set. Uh, set. Yeah, let us know using the hashtag, the Harvey Weinstein story broke in October. <laughs> we got 280 characters now, so we yeah. can have long hashtags. That was Mm -hmm. Well, last month, CNN published a bombshell story based on anonymous sources claiming that Michael Cohen had witnessed 
Donald Trump Jr. tell his dad about the Trump Tower meeting with the Russians. But last night, our reporter Stephen Prober tweeted this about Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis. Davis has told BuzzFeed News that he was an anonymous source for CNN's Trump Tower bombshell, a story he now disputes. He also regrets lying about his involvement on CNN's own air, and their own oxygen, friends, in an interview with Anderson Cooper last week. Stephen joins us now. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, David Mack. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Saeed. Thank you. Thank you. I was told just before we came on and not to call you Steve. For some reason, I thought like I ever I can only call you David Mack. Okay, You've got yeah. a first name, last name. Thing I going said on. I call you Pearlberg. So listen up, Pearlberg. Walk me through okay. this mess. Why is Lanny Davis all over the place here? And what does it mean for that CNN story? What's going on? Yeah, we're about to get in the weeds here. Um, so as you mentioned, that explosive July uh, 27th story from CNN uh, that, that multiple outlets rushed to confirm and did that Michael Cohen had been privately telling uh, people around him that he had information about Trump's knowledge of the Trump Tower meeting and that uh, Cohen had claimed that he was prepared to make those uh, allegations to special counsel Robert Mueller. Obviously an explosive development. Um, in, the, in the hours after CNN made that report in late July, a number of news outlets, including The Washington Post, NBC News, The New York Post, confirmed the story using, uh, at the time, an anonymous source, someone close to Cohen. Um, it was later revealed, now a month later, after Cohen had pleaded guilty, uh, and his lawyer, Lanny Davis, uh, started making the media rounds, um, backing away from some of those claims, those news outlets that used him to confirm those claims started to uh, kind of out him as their anonymous source, saying, hey, you confirmed this to us. Now uh, you're saying that you can't uh, uh, know that that's accurate. And that's how this thing started to unravel. And then there was our report last night. Okay, um, Proberg, I do want to ask you, you know, I, I was joking earlier this morning, like, Lanny Davis, like, great, another person now I need to contextualize in terms of understanding uh, the news events of the last two years. What's the significance of this story in the bigger picture? As you say, we're kind of in the weeds here. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned Lanny Davis. He uh, became well known as, a, you know, a counsel and communications guy for Bill Clinton uh, in the mid to late 90s. Um, so it's kind of bizarre that he's become a character in the, in the Trump uh, saga. But I think what, what the, the, you know, the greater significance of this is, um, you know, what, what it sort of means for the, for the broader uh, story. You know, L L Lanny Davis was confirming elements of, uh, you know, a pretty central thing that we're all talking about, this Trump-Russia story, and, and saying things that he now uh, says he can't be sure are true. And it calls into question uh, the CNN report that was that was a huge bombshell. CNN is is standing by the story now. Lanny Davis was uh, told me on the record last night that he was a source for that story, um, but the CNN story was citing multiple sources, which suggests to me at least that CNN believes that the strength of the story, uh, uh, you know, is, it, that the story is so strong, even though one of their sources who was. Uh, responsible for at least in part of their reporting has backtracked. Right. I think the interesting thing for me reading your story, Stephen, is that for, for journalists, there's a lot of these kind of in the weeds things about like on the record, off the record, background, anonymous sourcing right. stuff. And we know the president in particular has a problem with uh, journalists relying on anonymous sources, at least when the stories are, are critical of him. Mm. What do you think this whole episode and the way that your story exposes this kind of behind the scenes stuff says about the way that anonymous sources are kind of working or being used in, in the current Trump era? Sure. I mean, um, 
using anonymous sourcing is something that all newsrooms do. Uh, it's often a necessary part of reporting. In my story last night, I cited a CNN staffer who was critical of his own network, and I granted that person uh, anonymity because uh, you know so that they were able to speak candidly about their their opinion of of their own employers. Um, what I think uh, uh, is murkier, and what I think my story sort of exposes, is a practice where. Uh, you'll get, you'll talk to someone in, in a background capacity. They're a person familiar with the matter, source familiar with the matter, and then allow that person also to decline the comment on the record. And this, I think, is a dirty little secret uh, of journalism that you know some newsrooms do, some don't, which is allowing someone to both uh, be a decline the comment, giving them cover for not being involved, while also influencing the story on you know what we would call a background capacity. And I think that's something that a lot of readers are uncomfortable with, you know, being, being sort of hit in the face with it, because it does obscure the provenance of some of that information. And, and it is, um, you know, something that, it, it, you know, could be a, a problem. Um, so, so I think that's sort of what the story uh, speaks to a bit. Sure. And also, I mean, uh, how has CNN or Anderson Cooper kind of responded yeah. to this? Because, of course, this raises, this puts them in a, a unique situation. And, of course, CNN is a consistent target of Trump himself. Right. I mean, for, for, for the Cooper interview, what's interesting, of course, is that um, this whole thing about Lanny Davis's involvement in confirming the follow-up stories and then ultimately my story that he was a source in the original story stemmed from the fact that he went on Anderson Cooper's air. And when Anderson Cooper pressed him about the story, given the fact that Michael Cohen, it was revealed, had in sworn testimony basically claimed the other the other uh, you know, the opposite, that he didn't have knowledge of this. Um Davis backtracked from it. And all those reporters who had spoken to Davis about this very thing were like, what? Uh, he had confirmed that to me. So it's very interesting that, you know, this happened on CNN's air. And I think that they, you know, it, it is a black eye for, for, for CNN right now. I think personally, I think that they um, should speak, you know, other than giving me a one line sentence, I think that they need to engage with this a little bit more because to your point, Saeed, this does give ammunition to to the critics that want to claim the worst things about uh, worst about CNN. Um, you know, was this a mistake? I think probably should they engage with it? Yes. Does this negate the broader Trump Russia story as, as some, you know, uh, critics of CNN would want to suggest? No, um, but it's a piece of it. It's right. a piece of it. All right, Stephen. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks, Stevie. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. <laughs> Sorry. Here's, moving on. Here's a tweet from the Toronto Star's Daniel Dale about the latest trade news from the White House. It's just so bizarre. The president is issuing dramatic threats against Canada and saying he might not want a three-country NAFTA anymore, while his NAFTA negotiators are scrambling to try to make a three-country NAFTA deal in the next week or so. Well, joining us now to help us make sense of this trade deal with Mexico that isn't really a trade deal just yet is BuzzFeed News reporter Emily Tamkin. Emily, good morning. Good morning. Yes, that's what we're, what we're here to do. <laughs> yes, let's do it. All right, I'm game. Let's do it. Trump seems to be giving the impression yesterday at the White House in the Oval Office that this trade thing is a done deal. Mm -hmm. He had the Mexican president on the phone next to him. But it's not exactly a done deal just yet, is it? Right, so it will shock you to learn that the, way the president presented it uh, is not actually what is happening here. So... Um, you know, there's been these three-way NAFTA negotiations going on, obviously, between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Several weeks or a few months ago, the U.S. said it would be easier, maybe, if we try to do this with Mexico first, we agree on things, then we bring Canada in and see if we can also get them to sign on. So what we have right now is a comprehensive bilateral understanding between the U.S. and Mexico. 
this week, they will try to get Canada on board. If they can do that, great. Um, if not, Canada can still sign on later, although it would behoove Canada, if it is going to join, to join this week um, when they can still have more say in what changes are made. Um, but then basically what will happen is um, U.S. Trade Rep Lighthouser will, will send a letter saying this is our this is our new deal. Um, the heads of government have 90 days to sign on. But it's also important to remember that Congress has to approve it, right? So if Congress says, actually, we don't accept, well, Canada can join at any point as, as sort of sufficient, um, as a sufficient condition, right, for this, what was a trilateral trade deal, then, then it's all moot. Right. Oh, mood. Um, Emily, I know this is often a theme of our conversations, but I do feel you have such a unique challenge as a reporter with this beat. So how do you cover stories like this when when the president of the United States is kind of just throwing out pronouncements left and right um, that are often at odds with what the parties involved, including his own administration, um, are working to do? You know, it's interesting. I once, in the first year of the administration, I spoke to, I covered foreign diplomats and they would say, it's important to us to not react to the tweet, right? And to take a step back and say, okay, what's the policy happening around? Um, and now increasingly it's sort of like, well, what's the tweet, you know? And I, I think that as a foreign affairs reporter, that's your job too, to, to do both of those things, right? To take a step back when the president has the Mexican president on the phone um, and is saying, we have a new trade deal and NAFTA's done, take a step back and put that in the context of reality while realizing that what the president says is important and does matter and does influence foreign affairs. Speaking of foreign affairs, I want to ask you specifically in the thinking that was that is going on with uh, Mexico and Canada here. Uh, you know, the Trump administration came in, they arguably put a bit of a gun to both of these countries' heads and said, we don't like this deal, we want you to change it. Mm -hmm. Some people might be surprised that the Mexicans went along with this, right, given that Trump has been saying about Mexico. But Mexico has a very uh, important financial interest in trying to uh, keep trade going with the U.S., don't they? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's certainly Mexico. The U.S. doesn't benefit if there's no if there's no trade deal with Mexico, but Mexico certainly um, wanted to get a trade deal with the U.S. I would really stress that while Trump yesterday was saying, you know, Canada, maybe we'll work with Canada, maybe we won't. Um, the Mexican embassy here in D.C., in, in Washington, D.C., had a press conference um, where the foreign minister stressed we are going to be working with Canada around the clock, 24-7. Uh, All our efforts will be trying to get Canada, will be spent trying to get Canada to sign on this week. So I, I don't think it should be read at all as Mexico sort of saying we're throwing our lot in with the U.S. and, and whatever to Canada. That's not what happened, at least from the Mexican perspective, right? Whether the U.S. is trying to put pressure on Canada by doing it this way, the U.S. denies it. Maybe that is what happened, right? Um, but for but for Mexico, I don't think this was saying, you know, suddenly, yes, we agree with the way that the U.S. has done this. I, I don't think that's right. a fair thing to yeah, say. This is so complicated. So desires for hugs aside, <laughs> um, and you're alluding to this, but, you know, the other component of this is the relationship uh, between the Trump administration and Canada, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau and Trump, uh, it's yeah. seemingly increasingly, I would say, toxic. So how is that going to play into Canada agreeing to these terms? It will play into it. That is, that is um, yeah, I think that so the way that the way that the Mexicans put it yesterday is we have a bilateral understanding. So the U.S.-Mexico issues there are resolved. For the trilateral issues, they have proposals that Canada can agree with, um, reject, try to work on. But he also noted that there are some bilateral U.S.-Canada issues, for example, dairy. 
where it's, it's sort of Mexico's out of it and the U.S. and Canada have to resolve it, right? And the issue here is that um, Canada is one of the countries that Trump has pointed to as saying they are taking advantage of us. Whether or not that reflects reality is sort of less relevant in some ways with this administration, right, than with this ideological conception that, that, that Canada has been taking advantage of the U.S., of U.S. dairy farmers, and that Trump is here to, to avenge that. Whether or not that can be resolved between the U.S., trade team and the uh, the Canadian team, which is being held by um, Foreign Minister Christian Freeland, who was trade minister when Canada um, made its big trade deal with the EU, right? So this is not her first rodeo. Um, whether they can do that this week, we'll, we'll see by Friday. We will see by Friday. Looking forward to it. Cool. All right, uh, Emily, as always, thank you, honestly, for your candor and for helping us understand this this morning. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. All right, friends, stick around. Tarini Party will be sitting down with DNC Chair Tom Perez in a bit, but up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Get your Molotov cocktails ready. Do, 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 oh, do, he's do. <laughs> Okay, so a uh, lot of thank you for all of your tweets about our shirts, uh, Lisa Taza. Yes, we did intend to coordinate. We appreciate that. We did that. not. Uh, <laughs> to repeat, <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is not my shirt. This is our it's sound. It's a cute shirt. Our sound guy shirt. I love this shirt. Well, here's a tweet I mean, about it. Yeah. Uh, Psalm Keys tweeted, thanks to Dan, our sound guy. Yeah. Uh, that shirt looks so nice on you. It does. Thank you. It's funny, every time you hear the applause, know that Dan is yes, in charge of sound effects. Dan. So Dan is yes. technically applauding himself. Yes, he's very anyway, good Anyway, uh, let's get into these fire tweets, darlings. Okay, this comes from Sarah Osment. Today I asked my class to come up with a pair of terms that share a denotative meaning, but whose connotative meanings differ. And one student offered butt dial and booty call. Anyway, that student is the professor now. That's true. It's this so is weird. a very they, like, smart treat, but I also gave that one to you because I couldn't right. pronounce. It was too early for me to say denotative. Okay, I'm just going to stop. Llama in a tux. My roommate just drank my entire case of Coke from the fridge, so I hope he's prepared for my retaliation as I say and do nothing because I fear conflict. Did you ever have bad roommates? Yes. You did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad roommate story? Yeah. Just, it's like the general stuff about like cleaning up. It's just mm -hmm. that like crap in the kitchen. It's just mm -hmm. like, okay, I'll guess I'll wash all your shit for you, goodbye. Yeah. Like I just, I would just clean up the next day and they'd come down and be like, hey, look, the mess is all gone. I was just paid to have the apartment cleaned. Ooh, so I was like, listen, luxury. I'm gonna do it, then we'll take care of it. Luxury, luxury. yeah, hello, <laughs> me. All right, Neon Wario? Wario. That's like the, like the video game? Super Mario, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. Okay, let's go. Imagine how stupid you'd feel if you pitched yabba dabba do at that early Flintstones meeting and it didn't hit. My favorite thing about this, wasn't it like you'd be like, it'd be like Mad Men looking meeting while they're like, they'd all be wearing suits. Did they all, yeah, like, and they all went around the table. I feel like table. at that time the industry was still pretty. They all went around the table and just like said nonsense. Smoking cigars, like, yabba dabba do. Yabba Jake. Girls be like, can you get my lip gloss from my purse? Just reach in and head left, take a ride at the wallet, then turn left till you pass three neutral grain bars and take your next right and then head straight and it should be there. If you've hit the 2007 target receipts, you've gone too far. And I'm assuming that's a gender neutral girls because the same thing happens if you reach into my tote bag. Uh, you should see the size of my wallet at the moment. I wish it was full of cash. It's full of receipts. It looks like George Costanza's thing. It's Are they like for work expenses you need No, to? I just, I don't throw anything away. It's full of coins and pennies and stuff. It's like. Are you like a. 
I'm a hoarder. Are you a hoarder? I'm a, I'm a hoarder. It's not. Oh my god. Yeah. I carry it with me because I don't trust my colleagues to not to rob me during the show. <laughs> Man, you ready? We're running so much. Okay, shout out to this username. Are y'all ready? Okay. Here we go. Mm? <laughs> George Dobra Bush. <laughs> Overheard at cafe. My dad was my professor's professor at Yale Law. Now I'm at Yale Law. Can you believe? As if that wasn't the most literal believable thing. I love it. George Dubra Bush, who I he went to Yale. There are levels. <laughs> Shout out. Shout that, out. That is amazing. Dub just the word Dubra. I didn't think we were gonna get Dubra. Dubra. Uh, listen, we've got great shirts. The show's still going. There's more AM2DM up next. Why would you go anywhere else? Yeah, you're like, which camera am I? Okay, oh, there. Hello, my queens. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Jacqueline Woodson, author of so many wonderful books. I know you love Brown Girl Dreaming. Of course, she won the National Book Award for that, Another Brooklyn, and now two new books, The Day You Begin and Harbor Me. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. This is, this is, this is a perk. It's <laughs> a total perk. Because <laughs> I would sit down with you anyway. Yes. And then now we just get to do it, you know. I know, and we have us. sat down. We have. I well, listen, usually the there's some wine or some, you know, <laughs> cheese. Anyway, okay. So let's talk about these two new books. Okay. I'm so interested in the way you approach writing for young people. So The Day You Begin um, is about feeling like an outsider. Um, where did the idea for this book begin for you? Uh, so The Day You Begin, in Brown Girl Dreaming, mm -hmm. I have one poem that's about my great-great-grandfather. Mm -hmm. And he was the only black boy in his class. And, um, and when you see the picture, it's just this brown-skinned face in the sea of whiteness mm -hmm. in Ohio. And, you know, the early 20s. Mm -hmm. And um, my mom would always say to us, you know, they're go you're gonna have moments like this when you walk into a room and no one there is like mm -hmm. you. Um, and so show up, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like you, you have to learn how to deal with it because mm -hmm. we always walk into these rooms. And, and when I wrote that uh, memory in Brown Girl Dreaming, I knew that at some point something else would happen right. with that story, okay. and that's the you day just you kind begin. of filed it away. Yes, I yeah. love that. I love that. Um, and, and to get to Harbor Me, which is like middle grade, mm -hmm. a middle grade novel. Um, I love this because I think when we. If we have a dated understanding of young people's literature, we might go, wait a minute, a book about incarceration, deportation, racial profiling. Yeah. This is so intense, but that is, I feel that awareness is integral to your writing. Uh -huh. um, what would you say to people who go, can young people handle that? <laughs> Oh man, uh, young people are not living in bubbles, right? We know we know from our own memory of childhood what we compartmentalized mm -hmm. and what we took in and what we understood and what we filed away to understand mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. And I think that's still the case for young people. And they're hungry mm -hmm. and they're thirsty, right? They they mm -hmm. wanna know about the world and they're watching it and they're taking it in, but it's not always being explained to them. Or they're thinking that their experience is solely their experience. And I think that's a great thing that books do, right? Mm -hmm. It shows them this mirror that they're not alone in that experience. And, and they can really take in what they're ready for mm -hmm. and disregard the rest. And I think this idea of protecting kids or mm -hmm. keeping them in some kind of um, idyllic world. Right, or is, softening. Yeah, yeah, it's dishonest. Mm -hmm. And I think kids know when we're being dishonest. Mm -hmm. So with me and my own writing, it's not the thing I ever want to do. I never want to lie to kids. Mm -hmm. I want to show them that I respect them, that I see them, and uh, that 
what they know is true. Mm -hmm. Do you have a specific idea of young people in mind when you're writing books for you? Because you write for all different kinds of audiences <laughs> yeah. and all different kinds of audiences appreciate the range of your work. But, you know, are you thinking of yourself? Are you writing in mm -hmm. some ways books to who you were as a, as a teenager? Yeah. Are you writing to your children? Are you writing to young people, you know, that you might meet as young people's laureate? Uh, yeah, I think all of them, yeah. right? I, I first started writing and I still write to kind of fill the hole mm -hmm. that was there in my own world of literature as a child. Mm -hmm. And then to uh, fill the gap for, you know, um, kids who are coming up um, as kids of color, as queer kids, as kids um, and families dealing with incarceration and foster care. Like, there are all these worlds that need that representation on the page. And, and for me, it makes me sad to think that there's a young person walking around out there who doesn't see themselves in the world, who mm. feels invisible to the world. It feels not legitimized. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the literature does that. But, but it did start with trying to write books to fill that gap in my own childhood. Absolutely, I feel that way too. Um, something that I'm interested in, in with young people's literature is, is are the, the conversations mm -hmm. as a community of writers and readers and editors. If you in any way feel like an outsider to that conversation, you know, and I, 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 I watch, I watch, yeah. you know, it looks intense. It at times looks intimidating. Mm -hmm. um, does it feel that way to you? <laughs> I'm old hat, right? Yeah, yeah. and that's why I'm curious, because yeah. you've, you've seen it. You've yeah. seen it and been with it. Yeah, I've, I've been doing it for, what, 30 years, which is crazy. Um, and I, th I think it can be intimidating mm -hmm. when you're younger, and I think it can be intimidating if you're listening to the kind of buzz of mm -hmm. how impossible it is. I mean, you know this. You're a poet. You're a writer. Um, and I think we have to shut those voices down okay. to to just do our work. Mm -hmm. And and I think that especially I came of age before social media, okay. and and I didn't have all the voices in my head. I, I wasn't trying to get the serotonin likes, right? Okay. I was just trying to um, <laughs> tell a story. Mm -hmm. So it was this kind of tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to that, you don't have to. It, do, it doesn't feel as intimidating mm -hmm. as when you're thinking about this great white world mm -hmm. where all of the it's coming at you from all these different places. Mm -hmm. But but I don't think there's an impossibility to having a relationship with your editor, having a relationship mm -hmm. with your agent, um, getting into the um, world of publishing. Of course, you know the first thing you have to do is write a good book. Right. And then um, the rest comes. So I always think, am I writing the best book I can possibly write? Am I right. telling the best story? I could possibly tell. Mm -hmm. And you keep doing it. You keep <laughs> doing it. Um, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I can't even remember, I think I was getting ready for a Dear Ferocity segment on the show. Mm -hmm. And I was getting ready to talk about rejection and failure. Um, and I tweeted, you know, my own experiences as an author dealing with rejection. And I mm -hmm. used the hashtag, share your rejections. It's still out there. That little monster. Wow. <laughs> it was wow. incredible. And I didn't, you know, I was just trying to create the terms for people to ask questions mm -hmm. and everything. All kinds of writers and artists, celebrities have shared their stories uh -huh. about rejections along their career. Do you have um, a story? Because again, I mean, people, yeah. your, your career, the laudits, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely yeah. earned. And I think, you know, people can go, well, she's Jacqueline Woodson, like, surely. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, 
you know, every day, right? Mm -hmm. Every day there's something. So I've applied for um, fellowships and never got in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most recently I applied for uh, a fellowship with the New York Public Library, didn't get it. Um, and, and looking back on when I was younger writing, you know, I, we would actually send stuff out in the mm -hmm. mail, right? You send a short story to the New Yorker, it would come back, or it wouldn't even come back, right? right. You just get crickets. <laughs> and then you're like, I guess they didn't want it. Or, or even more naive, it's like, well, maybe it'll show up in right. this magazine yeah. after yeah. all. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it is at that um, um, sense of, um, yeah, you get rejected, but it means that that is not the place for you, mm. right? Right? I never, I never went to Yaddo, which is, uh, mm -hmm. I got rejected constantly yeah. from Yaddo. Prestigious artist colony. Yeah, it's an artist colony. Um, but, but McDowell accepted me, you mm -hmm. know, time and time again. And of course, you know, when I move on to the next place, McDowell's going to get my money, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm going to support the people that supported people like me. But I think that we can't, we can't take the rejections personally. Mm -hmm. We can only learn from them. Um, and, and it happens to all of us. I, I, I mean, you know, I still, there are things, I, I applied for the Rome Prize, mm -hmm. I didn't get that. And it meant that I wasn't meant to be in Rome mm -hmm. that year. That year. <laughs> yeah. Rome didn't deserve you that year. That's how we're gonna think about it. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for your work oh, um, and for the you. candor that you bring to it because I think it means something for people to see a black queer woman who consistently is thriving and also accessible and welcoming. So oh, thank, thank you, Jackie. You. Um, and again, the books are The Day You Begin and Harvard Me. They're in bookstores now. And just two of the books you need to be reading by Jacqueline <laughs> Up next, more AM to DM. Thank you. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News reporter Tarini Party, and she is sitting down with Tom Perez, chair of the Democratic National Committee. Good morning, Tarini. Good morning. Thanks, Saeed, and welcome, Tom. Great to be with you. Thanks for being here. Um, so I want to get right into the big sure. news from this weekend, which was, of course, the changes to the superdelegates. Um, so you've had sort of a, uh, a rocky history with the progressive left. Um, so I wanted to see why you decided to sort of team up with Bernie Sanders and the, the left to push for these changes. Well, this was actually the Democratic Party together, and I appreciated the support of uh, Senator Sanders and Larry Cohen and Jeff Weaver, and we also had the support of Tim Kaine and Howard Dean and a bunch of folks who were strong Hillary Clinton supporters in short. We had Obama people. We had, we had everyone in the Democratic family coming together around uh, a set of North Star goals, growing the party, uniting the party, restoring faith in the party by not only doing the superdelegate reform, but by doing a, a wide array of reforms designed to make it easier for people to participate. Uh, we're going to have more primaries and less caucuses in 2020, and we want to make sure that uh, folks feel good about the process so that they will embrace the Democratic Party. On the superdelegate reforms in particular, there seem to be some concerns from prominent black members of the DNC, of uh, the Congressional Black Caucus, about how these changes might disenfranchise uh, women, people of color, the LGBT community. Sh why shouldn't they be worried about these changes? Well, we had this discussion, and we, we had uh, very strong support among African Americans on the DNC. Uh, we had strong support among, really, the diverse community of the DNC and, and the questions that were raised 
by members of the CBC were important questions. And the original proposal uh, would have created two tiers of delegates. And the reason we rejected that proposal is that members of Congress and governors and senators uh, would have been basically that first tier and they would have had all of their rights retained. And then uh, everybody else would have been uh, the secondary tier of delegates and they would have had uh, lesser powers to vote. And, and getting specifically to your question about diversity, if we had adopted that, that first tier of delegates would have been 70% white and 70% male. And that second tier was 50-50 gender balanced and significantly more racially diverse. We didn't think that that reflected um, our values, frankly, as a Democratic Party. And so what we came together around was a, a very simple proposition which says that superdelegates continue to participate in every other activity of the convention except they don't vote on the first ballot. And when you treat everybody equally, then you don't have that adverse impact uh, on the basis of gender or race. So is it still going to take some effort from you guys to get that message that this is actually potentially better for these communities out to the members who are still who still have concerns? Well, we're going to continue to work to educate people. The good news is that these, these reforms passed overwhelmingly. Uh, we had a really rigorous debate. We studied you know, every, uh, every proposal that was brought to our attention, mm -hmm. and we came together around this package of reforms that I think is going to go a long way toward, again, growing the party, restoring trust, especially with young people. You know, when Barack Obama became president, mm -hmm. the most typical millennial voter was a registered Democrat. Now, by almost 10%, the most typical registered uh, voter is a registered unaffiliated. Now, they share our values, but they, for a number of reasons, haven't wanted to uh, put that Democratic uh, brand on them. And, and then you go to places like Colorado, take age out of the equation. The most typical voter, writ large, is a registered, unaffiliated voter. And so the good news is that I think these voters share our values. They, they, they want health care as a right for all, not a privilege for a few. They want, they want to make sure that a union can organize. They care about women's reproductive health. When we have these reforms that make them, I think, feel more part of the family, when they see that we're listening to the grassroots, I think that's a really important mm -hmm. signal, and I'm confident it'll give us more wind at our back. One person who has been part of the DNC family, Keith Ellison, he's um, the deputy chairman of the, the DNC. Um, he's campaigning to be Minnesota's next attorney general. Um, there's been abuse allegations against him, and it's not the first time that this has happened. Um, I know you guys have said that he, the allegations are under review currently. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about why the decision was made to keep him in this position uh, while you guys are still uh, doing this review? Well, we always take allegations of, of, of this nature very, very seriously, and uh, that's why we've, we've, uh, we've been reviewing the matter. And in particular, one of our officers, uh, who is the chair of the Minnesota Democratic Party, has initiated uh, the investigation. They will be prompt, they will be thorough, and they will be fair. Is there a timeline at all yet for this review? And, um, well, it's, it's, be done? it's actively underway right now. And again, their goals are to be um, timely, thorough, and fair. And, uh, that, and I'm confident they will be. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, one person who is playing a big role in the midterms on both sides, given all the ads that we've seen, is uh, Nancy Pelosi. She's made it clear that she's uh, not going anywhere. She is here to stay. Um, can you talk about whether or not you think she is hurting the Democrats this time around? I mean, she's uh, all over in ads. Republicans keep using her, as uh, does the president. Um, do you think she's hurting uh, the Democratic Party? Well, the Republicans are using Nancy Pelosi because they don't have a message. They want to distract from the matters at hand. They used Nancy Pelosi in the Connor Lamb race, mm -hmm. and it didn't work. Democrats are fighting for access to health care. We're fighting to take on... Uh, the pharmaceutical company who's gouging uh, consumers. We're fighting for people with pre-existing conditions. We're fighting for people who want to join a union. We're fighting for fair wages. We're fighting for pension security. We're fighting for women's reproductive health. We're fighting for our democracy. Uh, and the other side is, frankly, uh, they don't have a message other than we're going to help rich people by giving them reckless tax cuts. And so uh, it's not a surprise to me that they would... Uh, try to put Nancy Pelosi on the ballot. Without Nancy Pelosi, we wouldn't have had the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. That is a fact. And uh, this message, again, is not resonating. That's why you see, so, you know, we flipped 43 uh, different races dating back to 2017 from but red to blue. it does require Democrats to have some, uh, to create this distance between them, between themselves and the, the House leader, uh, Nancy Pelosi. There are, they aren't talking about her. They haven't said if they're going to vote for her if they're in the House. Does that hurt the Democrats' message? Oh, I mean, listen, every Democrat will do what's in, uh, what they believe is, reflects both their electoral imperatives and, and the will of the voters in their particular district. Um, Thank God that Nancy Pelosi fought for the Affordable Care Act. I talked to so many people with pre-existing conditions, so many people who got health care for the first time in their lives, mm -hmm. uh, and they're eternally grateful. And I'm quite confident we're, we've, got, we've got so many races in play in the House. That Ohio 12 race mm -hmm. uh, was a jump ball in a district that has been in, Demo in Republican hands for over 30 years, and there are something like 70 House districts more competitive than Ohio 12. And uh, we're putting the issues that people care about clearly on the ballot. And they don't have any message. And, and the, the culture of corruption in this town um, under this Republican leadership is, is off the charts. We, we need guardrails for this president. We're not getting it from the Republican leadership. We're frankly not getting it from the Supreme Court. And that's why I'm confident that we can not only uh, take over the House, but I think we've got a real shot at the Senate. It's uphill. But uh, Alabama was uphill last mm -hmm. year, and we did it. Uh, on that Democratic messaging in particular, um, you know, last week Trump was implicated as a co-conspirator co in the Cohen guilty plea. Um, since then, we've seen calls from the Democratic base to sort of turn up the calls for impeachment. Is that something that you think Democratic candidates should be doing? Is there a disconnect between what the base wants in terms of this impeachment messaging and what candidates and officials are willing to say? Well, I'll tell you that I've traveled all over this country, and, and what I hear most frequently from people is, I've got a pre-existing condition. I want my member of Congress, I want my senator, I want my governor to be fighting for me. And mm -hmm. in Ohio, you've got members of Congress on the Republican side who are fighting to repeal the Affordable Care Act. you got a candidate for governor mm -hmm. who wants to undo Medicaid expansion that was brought about by the Republican incumbent governor. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the things that I'm hearing most frequently. Uh, I'm hearing from you know, soybean farmers mm -hmm. in the industrial Midwest who are getting hammered by 
these tariffs that uh, the president has put on. I'm, I'm hearing from women who are concerned that their reproductive health is is at risk and and so that's what we've been focused on and we also need accountability mm-hmm. we have a president who is completely off the rails the culture of corruption in this town is i mean the swamp they said they were going to mm-hmm. uh, drain it has got it's the size of the pacific ocean mm-hmm. and and so we need guardrails and we need to make sure we have democrats in charge to hold this mm-hmm. president accountable and at the same time we need to make sure we preserve these basic items of solid education, health care, that are providing that mm-hmm. um, pathway to the middle class. That's what I'm hearing the most from voters. Sure. Um, in terms of those guardrails, um, what should Democrats do if the president decides to pardon either Manafort, pa- Paul Manafort, or uh, Michael Cohen? Is there a plan? What do the, how, do they, how do you think they should act in that sort of guardrail fashion? Well, I think we prevent it from happening to begin with by rising up. We prevent it from happening by electing more Democrats. We, we prevent it from happening by, again, um, <laughs> bringing back our democracy. This is the most important election of our lifetime. Uh, our, it's not, it's, it, I mean, it's not simply these indispensable issues of health care and education and women's reproductive health and opportunity for everyone that are on the ballot. Our democracy is on the ballot. And, and that is why it is so important for us to get out there. That's why our signature initiative at the DNC is I will vote. You're trying to, we're trying to reach 50 million uh, voters to make sure they get out there to register to vote, to protect the vote, to get out the vote. That's what this election is about. We need guardrails in Washington. We need opportunities in state houses across this country. There's a 12-year election cycle. The next governor in all of these states are going to be in great control over the redistricting process. And in 2010, when we lost so many elections, we're still seeing the consequences of that disastrous uh, midterm election. We're not going to let it happen again. That's why we're organizing everywhere. All right. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Tom. And up next, more AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Rack senior editor Meredith Haggerty. All those photos of vistas and lakes and mountains you see on Instagram are having an effect on the actual environment, but what kind? Joining me now to answer that question is Zoe Schiffer, who explored the impact of nature's influencers on nature. Hi, Zoe. Hey. Hey. So in your piece, you basically talked about two major effects, you know, some good, some bad, um, that these influencers are having. Um, Could you expound on that some more? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's one basic impact, which is that more people are getting outside, more people are visiting national parks, more people are finding out about like the hidden hikes and hot springs through social media. And that really has two major impacts. In theory, it means that more people care about environmental issues, they have a connection to the land, and they want to see it protected. But on the flip side, not everyone knows or is aware of leave no trace principles and the human impact on these places is just truly enormous. And not everyone, not every place has the resources or the infrastructure to really keep up with that amount of visitors. For sure. And I think for a lot of us, I know even me as I was reading it, I didn't even know nature influencers was a thing. It was news to me. 
So who are some of the nature influencers, you know, that we should be following and what's kind of their background? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, one thing that surprised me in writing the article is they're all really different. Almost no one I talked to tried to become an influencer. And when I set out, I assumed that many of them would have been hardcore outdoors people or professional photographers before they got into it. But that was not the case. I mean, Taylor Burke, who's in the article, truly wonderful photographer. He was shooting on an iPod Touch when he started out and had never owned a camera before, was apprenticing to be a plumber at the time. And then his account just blew up. Um, and now he does this full time. Similarly, Jessica Dales, um, her handle is just wandering. She was working as a lawyer in Seattle before she was laid off and decided to travel and start taking photos. And now she works full time as an influencer as well. So you mentioned quite a bit about Bears Ears National Monument in particular and raising awareness around that. So tell us what's kind of going on with uh, Bears Ears. Yeah, so that issue um, got a lot of press. I mean, Obama had protected Bears Ears. He'd said it was a national monument. Trump rolled that back and said he was going to shrink it um, significantly, or the Trump administration, rather. Um, and the outdoors community got really up in arms about it. I mean, influencers were all over it immediately, posting about it on social media, asking their followers to tweet at Senator Mike Lee, to tweet at President Trump, and tell people to actively voice their dissent. Um, and Patagonia was heavily influential in that campaign. They um, actually ended up suing the Trump administration over this. Um, and they waged a massive PR campaign saying that it was an illegal move, that um, the Trump administration was stealing our land. Um, and that got just a ton of attention for the issue as well. Right. And you also mentioned even earlier how parks are not used to having to accommodate so many visitors. So how are they, you know, dealing with the trash? You know, it's hot, more trash than normal. And how are parks, you know, adjusting to that? Yeah, it's a huge issue. I mean, my sister right now is hiking the PCT and she's mentioned that the amount of trash on that trail is just truly enormous. So it's a problem. And I don't think we figured out exactly um, how to contend with it. One thing that the um, Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics has said um, is to not take photos of yourself breaking the rules or leaving trash places because it encourages other people to do the same. Um, so they've published a set of social media guidelines instructing people how to be involved in the outdoors, but in a way that's responsible. Right. And so would you say weighing all of the pros and cons, what's the general thoughts um, with all of the speak the people that you spoke to? Is it, you know, are the influencers doing more harm than good the other way around? Yeah, it's hard to say. I thought about this a lot. I mean, I think on the one hand, um, creating more awareness about the outdoors and outdoor adventures um, makes it more accessible to people from all different backgrounds. And I think that that's really the argument for it is that it shouldn't be an elitist sport. Everyone should be able to find out about these places and should be able to go and visit them. Um, on the flip side, I think that we do have to be responsible when we use social media outside. I think um, one thing all of these influencers do is they don't tag specific locations anymore. They tag general areas. Um, they don't take pictures of themselves breaking the rules. And we really need to keep that in mind when we're in these outdoor spaces. Well, thank you so much, Zoe, for joining us. And more AM to DM is up next. Thank you. Welcome back. This is Save the Day brought to you by Wendy's for Four Meal. 
Ray-Bans tweeted, me getting all of my shopping carts ready for Labor Day online sales. And Kayla Suazo, BuzzFeed's market writer, is here to help us prepare for the upcoming weekend of sales. Hey, bro. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm really excited. Oh, so, yeah, it's the best time of the year. It's the best time it of really the is. year. And it's like super, you know, it's kind of ironic because there are sales throughout all of the like holidays. Yeah. So why is Labor Day so special? What's different about Labor Day sales? Well, it's a closeout of all summer stuff, you know, camping gear goes on sale and you know it's nice because it's not going to get cold for another couple months you can snag some camping gear and still have time to go camping right and um, other things like patio furniture mm -hmm. backyard stuff it's a good time to stock up on that because it's the end of the season they're right. you know stores are clearing it out so mm -hmm. that would be a good one to jump on got it yes so it sounds like kind of like see it's a big season transition yes, yes. so more things are on sale oh yes mm -hmm. lots of good stuff even bigger items yeah are okay on sale. we're gonna get to okay so Nooney said starting my shopping for new appliances can't wait for their Labor Day weekend sales what kind of appliances and big-ticket items are on sale and why now yes okay so this is the time when big companies are starting to prepare for their new models which roll out in the fall time like October right. so we're talking fridges um, ovens washer dryers new models start coming out in the fall so they're trying to get rid of or just kind of clear out some of their current inventory. So it's right. a good time to still get pretty much, you know, really yeah. newer stuff. Um, and even cars. Yeah. It's a big time for cars. A lot of car companies are starting to get ready to release their new fancy models. And mm. so it's a good time to go buy a car. So what about for the people like me who don't need appliances because we don't cook <laughs> and we live in New yeah. York so we don't drive. <laughs> we, don't need, we don't need cars. What about clothes? Oh, yes. Um, there are going to be tons of clothing deals. So a lot of the back to school deals are over, but um, you can still get some good stuff for summer. You know, it's a good time to stock up for next year. I'd say that the bigger winter sales are probably going to be around Black Friday, mm -hmm. but um, fall clothes, summer clothes, a good time to get them now. That's all I care about. I only care right, about the clothes. Right. Um, so yeah, just check out your favorite stores if you're like me and you have, you're on every single one of your favorite stores email lists. They'll be blasting you with their best sales. Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of them start early. So right. you can probably you can probably get some of the good stuff before Labor Day even starts. So is it too late to look for travel? Like, have we missed that? Like, if we wanted to travel for Labor Day weekend, is there still a way to save oh, yeah. on places to go and just like you know things to do? Yes. Um, so Skyscanner has great deals. I think there's some like currently to like Vegas. We just hop on a plane Stop and go to it. Vegas, um, Mexico, Bahamas, all those. And then another great um, resource is using Google. Google's flights have all these amazing new um, features that let you just explore cheapest options, it, um, make your dates flexible to give you the best prices. So yeah, you can still hop on a plane and go somewhere. And if you aren't looking to go anywhere, uh, Facebook is a great resource for that. Just typing in events and being like, what's going on near me? And a bunch of things will come up. A lot of free concerts, festivals, carnivals. Ken, it's the best time of the year. So you can, there's still plenty of things to do. So what about you? What are you most excited about? Like what sales, what deals? Oh, yeah. The close, of yeah, course. Right. Um, actually, BuzzFeed, um, my team is creating a big post. It's a master doc. It should go live um, sometime soon this week. It'll have all of the best deals, all of your favorite stores. It'll tell you what's on sale, what percentage off. So I'm I'm going to be checking that out. You should check that out. I will. Um, should go live later this week. And happy shopping. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Thank you for joining us and keeping an eye out for BuzzFeed's master post of all the best Labor Day sales and we'll tweet it out from our page as well. Don't go away. More AM to DM up next. Welcome back. We survived. It's like 
haphazardly put together show. It was a crazy Tuesday. Again, yeah. David Essence as well. Yeah. Um, if you, are, I don't know when you joined us this morning, friends, but David and Essence joined us at the very last minute. Um, we had a host who was sick this morning, and you know, you all are doing such tremendous work. And it also have to note when David hosts the show, and when Essence hosts the show, and other guests you see, they leave and they go back to the newsroom and get back to the rest of their work. And so I just really appreciate. <laughs> That's I'm trying to do the upside down emoji. Face, uh, oh, so okay. Just, like, smiling. Like, All right. I don't know. I like right the, the straining. But it was a great show. Very anyway, interesting. It was. And we asked uh, you at the top of the show for your reactions to Louis C.K.'s return to comedy. And this one's from Softy38. He didn't do anything to earn a return except to be quiet for a while, then just appear again. He said he would listen, but I just see him trying to speak up again instead of letting women be heard. I loved Louis, but I can't stand to watch him anymore ever. And I liked it. Your point before you were like, well, why didn't he like give this opportunity to allow the female comics that he masturbated in front of without their consent to have this? Because stage? that's what happened. That could have been yeah. that could have been a really powerful moment instead yeah. of him being like, you know, getting up and doing his own set about his own thoughts. It's like here, I want to let the women mm -hmm. speak. And since yeah. we were all watching each other, and I mean this as men, uh, watching each other and and figuring out, you know, how we're navigating and what we can get away with and what we should learn from. Yeah. Um, I think there's such an opportunity for innovation. I was like, my goodness, they could have been like, and now a surprise performance of Louis C.K. And he got up there and then said, and now a surprise airing of Nanette by Hannah Gadsby <laughs> and walked his ass off the stage. You know, there, there really is an opportunity, I think, to figure out, like, how do we change the narrative? Yeah. If we say we listen, what does that look like in action? And yeah. he, if he continues to argue that he is different from all the monsters that he seems to really believe that he can distinguish himself from, I think he needs to prove that. Yeah, I would agree. Here's some more tweets. Um, Ashley C. Ford, you had this to say about Jacqueline Woodson. Oh my God, Jackie's everything. I wish somebody, anybody, had been writing about how incarceration affects young people when I was a young person. I had all of the feelings and none of the affirmation or connection to know, let me know I was not alone. Yeah, I just... I, I really appreciate, uh, one, that again, as I say, like Jackie Woodson writes for so many different audiences and so many different audiences read, you know, that different work. But yeah, like, don't lie to young people. They know when we're lying yeah. to them and we can't pretend that many, many people, many, many kids in this country have family members, parents um, who are behind bars. Those kids deserve to see their stories reflected too. Can I just say on a personal note, one of my favorite segments on this show is watching you interview authors. Mm. I think this is like, it's so beautiful that we have a show that allows you uh, a writer yourself to do these deep dives and you have these really beautiful conversations and that was one of them. Thank you. Yeah, it was, was a joy. Fun. I mean, I was like, I, we could do that for free. <laughs> we could do that for free. Don't, don't, don't tell the producer. Oh, careful. Don't let them get cocky. Careful, Ben. No, it was a uh, Patrick Comifers <laughs> has a question about Lanny Davis. Mm. We talked about it at the top of the show. What is the process for vetting anonymous sources? I can't figure out if this counts as a mistake on CNN's part or is an unavoidable part of sourcing. Either way, Lanny Davis fuels the narrative that the media isn't to be trusted. And these are great questions. I also, I CC'd yeah. uh, Pearlberg for you, Patrick. Yeah. But, you know, as an editor, you deal with breaking news. What are your thoughts? So I will say, like, you're not going to run a story if you don't know who the source is. You have to know, an anonymous source doesn't mean that you, the reporter or your editor, doesn't know who the source is. Okay. It means that you're granting the person in the story uh, anonymity from the public 
for some reason. It has to be a good reason. It has to be that they're going to they're fearing reprisal that they need in order to speak openly, whether it's political or commercial reprisal, okay. in order to share confidential information is usually the reason. Uh -huh. Maybe it's also that they fear for them their safety or something. Right, like it could that. be a whistleblower. Exactly, a whistleblower. So that an anonymous source doesn't mean that you don't know who the person is. It mm -hmm. just means that you're helping protect their identity. But what that CNN got into trouble there for, obviously, is that they, as Stephen explained, allowed him to be anonymous, but then also allowed him to be on the record in the story declining to comment. So it was kind of like they're misleading their uh, readers about who was in the story and who wasn't in the story. And I think that whole story just makes me think, well, especially in this political era, if you're going to grant a political source anonymity, you need to be questioning what their motives are, what their, in, what their intent is here. And I think here we're seeing with the CNN story, there seems to be some effort to kind of get some interest from Robert Mueller. He's trying to kind of like sprinkle the seeds out there. You should want to talk to my client. He has right. information when we don't even know he has. It right. seems like he's already saying he doesn't have information. Right. Yeah. It's a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. And for better or worse, I mean, we have to own that the that the media and, and journalistic yeah. institutions are under such scrutiny right now. So it's just uh, lessons yeah. that we should have learned a long time ago. In any case, thank you for your tweets. Thank you to our guests today, Tom Perez, Jackie Woodson, Stephen Perlberg, Emily Tampkin, Tarini Party, Essence Gant, Zoe Schiffer, and Cal uh, Kayla Salza. Uh, thank you all. And again, David Essence, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, send out the bat single. Shout out to uh, Dan, our audio guy's shirt. I'm also, this. Dan's wearing David's shirt in the control room. It's a whole thing. Anyway, I'll be back tomorrow. Who's hosting with me? Who knows? We can we'll say. see. <laughs> we'll oh, see. No, wow. I'm doing my <laughs>